Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Tortoise. Hello, it's Claudia here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. Tucked behind Paddington Station in West London is an anonymous-looking office block. It's called Dorland House. And inside, for the past six months, a team of lawyers led by a retired High Court judge have been holding a public inquiry. They're trying to get to the bottom of the UK's response to the COVID pandemic. It is a lot to take in. Blink and you can easily miss a new revelation. So, with the help of Imogen Harper and Phoebe Davis, my colleague Kerry Thomas has honed in on a particular period of time. A period of around six weeks, from mid-September 2020 to the second national lockdown announced on Halloween. It is the story of a mess. And it raises an important question about how we are governed. What happens when the person at the top of government, the Prime Minister, chooses to ignore advice from his scientists, his medical experts and his closest political advisers. Cast your mind back just over three years to the autumn of 2020. We've had six or seven months to get used to not just the fact of Covid, but the idea of it. To the idea that life as we know it can be turned on its head. That we can be stopped from going out, made to stand apart, not allowed to go to the funerals of people we love who've died from this disease which didn't even exist a year ago. And we have got used to it, amazingly quickly looking back. The conversation, not just in the UK, has started to turn to how we live with the virus. We've just put to bed, eat out to help out. Meals eaten at any participating business Monday to Wednesday will be 50% off up to a maximum discount of 10%. The Chancellor's £850 million scheme, Rishi Sunak's scheme, to subsidise burgers, tacos and katsu curries and help save 2 million jobs in hospitality. But what we don't have yet is the most important thing that will help us live with Covid in the end. We don't have a treatment that really works. We're much better at treating it than we were six months ago, that's for sure. And there's a real belief that the vaccines which will change everything should start to arrive by the end of the year. But the virus still kills. And if it doesn't kill, it can still put more people in hospital than hospitals can cope with. And choke off appointments for patients with other conditions that are as bad as COVID and often worse. If 
we let it run out of control. Three years or so ago, let's say at the beginning of September 2020, that's where we are. Still nervous, many of us, about this virus, even though it seems to be relatively under control at the moment. Petrified, a lot of us, about it killing our jobs as well as our grandparents. Chafing against some of the restrictions on our lives. And unaware that the British government is about to enter what history may judge to be the most incompetent and mistaken phase in its handling of the whole pandemic. Today, the UK's COVID inquiry is really just getting going. We will be calling many witnesses, advisors, experts, scientists, politicians and civil servants. But I will also Next week, it will finish the second of what will become at least 11 so-called modules looking into different aspects of the pandemic. Before the inquiry is done, it will turn into a quarter of a billion pound marathon. Some of the lessons it draws will be argued over long after it wraps up. But already you can see one theme emerging from the evidence that's been given. The UK government's dithering and delay over lockdown one, right at the beginning of COVID, were forgivable to some extent because everything about the pandemic was new. But by September 2020, ahead of what would turn out to be lockdown two, the handling was unforgivable because the government had forgotten lessons which should still have been fresh in its mind, because the failure of leadership was inexcusable and because a lot of people lost their lives as a result. So this is the story of 43 days laid bare at the COVID inquiry, 43 days from the middle of September 2020 to the end of October, that began when the government's chief scientific and medical advisers went to see Boris Johnson to tell him he had to act and ended with a press conference in Downing Street. Patrick Valence and Chris Whitty, the government's chief scientific advisor and chief medical officer, walked into shop looking sombre before the Prime Minister appeared, wearing one of his unfortunate half-smirks. Good evening and apologies for disturbing your Saturday evening with more news of COVID. And I can assure you I wouldn't do this unless it was absolutely necessary. But first I'm going to hand over to Chris and then to Patrick who will present the latest data. Thank you, Prime Minister. First slide, please. That was the 31st of October 2020. For such an important announcement, a second national lockdown, the words and Boris Johnson's undignified rush to hand over to his advisers already feel inadequate. And if you think the disorganised, rambling delivery hints at the chaos behind the scenes, it does. But it only tells a fraction of the story. Because within those 43 days are critical lessons, not just for the way the pandemic was handled, but for the way the country is run. I'm Kerry Thomas. This is the slow newscast from Tortoise. Unforgivable. The story of Boris Johnson and Covid's second wave. Persuading the boss to do the right thing, managing up, is a fact of life in most organisations and there's nothing new about it. In 10 Downing Street by September 2020, it had been elevated to an art form. Boris Johnson's closest advisers had their own language to describe his trolleying. You should trolley on it. Meaning? Random changes of direction like a shopping trolley with a wonky wheel. And advisers who developed a range of tactics 
get the Prime Minister down the supermarket aisle without smashing up the stacks of baked beans. There were five crucial days at the beginning of the 43 when the handling of Boris Johnson by his advisers concerted attempt to get him to do what they thought was the right thing seemed almost painfully obvious. At the end of them, it looked as if the Prime Minister was locked on the course they'd advised. But there's no point being a shopping trolley if you're not going to be unpredictable right up to the checkout. The five days began on September the 18th, 2020, when the British government's chief scientific advisor and chief medical officer went to 10 Downing Street to tell the Prime Minister what people like John Edmonds, professor of infectious disease modelling, had been seeing in the data. You know, we had a lot of, a lot of things in place, of course. Test and trace was in place. Mask wearing was in place and all kinds of, you know, the COVID safe measures. But most importantly, people's contacts were way, way, way down on what they normally are. And so essentially people were being very, very cautious, despite all the government advice to get back to work. So there was a lot of caution in the population and that was helping to slow the epidemic down considerably. But it was unquestionably going up. John Edmonds was a key scientific voice in the government's ear, a member of the panel of scientists known as SAGE. He's talked to us for this podcast and he gave evidence to the COVID inquiry. Everything we're reporting comes either from evidence given under oath to the inquiry, from interviews we've done to pick up on points raised there, or just occasionally from conversations we've had off the record with people who can't speak openly. You could see in September cases in hospital were starting to accumulate again. We were starting to see cases in, in care homes again, despite the testing that was in place then and so on. And you couldn't just see. You could see more clearly than scientists would have dared dream just a few months earlier. Oh, the, the data then were amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing. It is quite extraordinary what we did, um, what we put in place from about May, April, May onwards. So we had incredible insight into the epidemic at that point. And also, to be honest, I don't think anywhere else in the world had as good data as we did then. So with the numbers in their back pockets, Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance went into Downing Street on September the 18th. And we have, from the written witness statement sent to the COVID inquiry by the Prime Minister's advisor, Dominic Cummings, an account of what they said. His words here have been voiced up. The witty valence argument was simple. The lesson of exponentials and the first wave is, if you're going to have to act, then act now. Because it saves more people and doesn't have to last so long. So it minimises disruption of the NHS and the economy, and unless we have some great luck, we'll have to act, or else accept the NHS being overwhelmed. From Lee Kane's evidence at the inquiry, we get a picture of the Prime Minister in at least two minds. Lee Kane, who was Boris Johnson's chief media advisor. I think... The Prime Minister was, was torn in this issue. I think if he, if he would have been in his previous role as a journalist, he would probably have been writing articles saying we should open up the beaches and, you know, how um, we should, you know, get ahead with getting back. And I think he felt torn where the evidence on one side and public opinion and scientific evidence was very much caution, slow. Um, we're almost certainly going to have to do another suppression measure, so we need to have that in mind, to... Uh, you know, media opinion um, and 
the bulk of you know a certain rump of the Tory party was pushing him hard in the direction. So I think that was probably part of the reason for the oscillation because you know the the rigid measures were very much against the sort of what's in his sort of political DNA, I guess. Dominic Cummings' recollection from his witness statement was that presented with this plan to announce a second lockdown soon, Boris Johnson wasn't very torn at all. The PM didn't want to. He was under pressure from a set of MPs and from the Telegraph. He didn't have an argument and didn't challenge the data. He just said he didn't want to. Other supposed experts outside government say there won't be a second wave. And his judgment was, we should wait and see, or hit and hope, as he sometimes expressed it around then. A lot of the themes that played out over the next 43 days are contained in that short extract. A Prime Minister who didn't make sophisticated arguments based on evidence, pushed back against the advice he was getting, who was all instinct and emotion, who was closely tuned in to voices from outside the room from newspapers and his party, and hoping that something would turn up. The day after Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance went to see Boris Johnson, Patrick Vallance wrote a note in his diary. He is all over the place and completely inconsistent. You can see why it was so difficult to get agreement to lockdown first time. So the efforts to get the Prime Minister to fall in line with the advice he was getting ramped up. Two days after the Chris Whitty-Patrick Vallance meeting, another one was set up, at short notice on a Sunday, September the 20th. And this one, the point of it really, was to include experts that Boris Johnson was inclined to agree with. The epidemiologists Professor Sunetra Gupta and Carla Hennigan, who were both sceptical about the need for a second lockdown. And the architect of Sweden's famously less hair-shirted approach to Covid, Anders Tenniel. He wrote later in his memoirs that he was surprised to be asked and couldn't quite figure out why he was there. But the purpose of the meeting seemed clear. The Prime Minister wanted to listen to a range of different views. That's how it was explained to me. Um, Seems fair enough. Dominic Cummings was in the room, but behind the camera, out of sight. Most people joined online, including regulars like Chris Whitty, Patrick Valance and John Edmonds. And this was all, I think, quite hurriedly uh, put together because I didn't know, you know, I was invited to it, I think, on the Friday. So we sort of put a, a one-pager in on, uh, on Saturday or whatever. And then we were each given a few minutes to sort of talk to our point, And then we were kind of queried by by the Prime Minister and the the then-Chancellor. I thought the argument I made was relatively compelling, but clearly it wasn't compelling enough in the end. One reason for getting together a meeting like that on the hurry-up would be to signal to a Prime Minister that he was being listened to, as a Prime Minister should be, before he takes a momentous decision finds difficult and personally troubling. And there's just a hint in John Edmund's recollection that what was happening wasn't quite run-of-the-mill. Funnily enough, we were kind of asked to keep it um, secret, which I did. That same day, Simon Ridley, a civil servant who was the head of the COVID task force at the Cabinet Office, sent round a paper marked official, sensitive and maybe optimistically given Boris Johnson's track record by that point, for decision. It set out some options for the government to consider based on the way the virus seemed to be spreading different strengths of lockdowns in effect. But what's most interesting about the paper is that it reveals some thinking at the heart of government about how long the Prime Minister had to make up his mind. You could decide to take minimal action now 
with a plan to intervene a couple of weeks hence, the paper said, but then warned that the consequence of waiting even that short time might be grim. A little later, it looked at what might happen if the government delays action by a week or more. Nothing longer than that seems to have been contemplated. So on that Sunday, September the 20th, the window for doing something, biting the bullet on a second lockdown, was assumed in Whitehall to be a week or so, two at most, but with consequences already piling up if it was delayed even that long. I spoke to someone who was in and around Downing Street during that autumn three years ago and who'd known most of the main characters for years, particularly Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. I wanted to make sure that what looks like a carefully choreographed attempt to bounce the Prime Minister into accepting his advisor's advice was, in fact, that. And that person told me that absolutely no doubt at all that's exactly what was going on. So the choreography continued at an even more frantic pace the following day, Monday, September the 21st. Three important things happened that day. First, Dominic Cummings organised a briefing for Boris Johnson where people were asked, literally, to pretend that it wasn't actually September the 21st. It was about a month later. We'll come back to that in a minute. Second, Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance gave a televised press conference. Just the two of them. No politicians in the room. That was pretty rare. And third, there was a rash of meetings between the Prime Minister and editors and owners of newspapers and broadcasters. Eight altogether. That's a lot in a single day for the Prime Minister. Seven were with what you'd broadly call the right of centre papers, the Telegraph, the Times, the Mail, the Sun. And the eighth was with the BBC. All these events overlapped on the day, so the let's pretend it's October meeting is as good a place as any to start. It was Dominic Cummings' idea. At the end of the meeting on the 18th, I suggested that we have a further meeting after the weekend at which we would present the data as if we were weeks in the future. My hope was to put him into the mental state the data suggested he would be in at the end of October and make him realise what he would then do. The Cabinet Secretary agreed with me. I asked the Number 10 Data Science team to work on it over the weekend. On the Monday, we had the hypothetical future meeting in the Cabinet Room. I structured the meeting so it was introduced as, Hello PM, it's the ex-October, we're looking at today's data. It leaps out as one of the starkest judgments we've heard so far from the Covid inquiry on a Prime Minister whose closest advisers had come to believe he wouldn't take rational decisions based on evidence. He had to be manoeuvred into the right mental state, the right emotional state, before he'd do what they were certain needed to be done. And the public had to be manoeuvred at the same time. That may be why Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance chose that day to give a press conference without a minister in the room. Perhaps they felt they could land their message more cleanly that way. At the moment, we think that the epidemic is doubling roughly every seven days. And you can see that by mid-October, if that continued, you would end up with something like 50,000 cases in the middle of October per day. 50,000 cases per day would be expected to lead a month later, so the middle of November, say, to 200-plus deaths per day. So this graph, which is not a prediction, 
is simply showing you how quickly this can move if the doubling time stays at seven days. That was Patrick Valence, closely followed by Chris Whitty. We cannot do this without some significant downsides. And this is, uh, this is a balance of risk between if we don't do enough, the virus will take off. And we, at the moment, that is the path that we are clearly uh, on. And we, if we do not change course, then we're going to find ourselves in a very difficult problem, as Patrick has laid out. That projection from Patrick Vance of 50,000 cases of COVID a day two weeks down the line came in for a kicking, not least from Andrew Neil on Spectator TV. Let's talk now to the Professor of Theoretical Epidemiology at the University of Oxford, uh, Sunetra Gupta. Uh, welcome to the show, Professor. I'm looking at the seven-day moving average of new cases. Uh, it's now 6,220. A week ago, it was 4,501. So it's not doubling, it's rising by under 40%. I would suggest to you, you know so much more than I do than this, that it's inconceivable that we will get to 50,000 cases a day, as Professor Whitting has said, within two weeks. It's worth spending a minute on the rights and wrongs of that argument over numbers because it plays into a bigger one about how well served the country was by scientists and the projections they were making. England didn't get to 50,000 cases a day by the middle of October, as Patrick Valence suggested it could on the trajectory it was following at the time. But some new restrictions were introduced in the meantime, like a 10pm curfew on pubs and bars, for example. And even with those new measures in place, the number of new cases reached more than 35,000 a day by October the 16th. Not 50,000, but that figure was very conceivable if those new lockdown measures hadn't been brought in. And alongside the number of daily cases, Patrick Valance mentioned a potential 200 deaths a day from Covid by the middle of November. As it turned out, we didn't have to wait nearly that long for things to get so bad. In the week up to the end of October, almost 1,400 people died from the virus. 200 a day. The third important set of events on that Monday, September the 21st, 2020, was that run of eight separate meetings with a who's who of owners and editors of right of centre newspapers, The Telegraph, The Daily Mail, The Times and The Sun, plus the Director General of the BBC and its Director of News. Some commentators have looked sideways at those meetings and assumed they were just another chance for people who already had too much influence over Boris Johnson to get even more and bend his ear even harder about not locking down. But actually, in at least some of those meetings, the ones I've been able to find out about, the ear bending seems to have gone the other way. In those meetings, it was Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance who did more of the talking than Boris Johnson. And again, I can't speak for all of them, but I know a number of the senior news people took away from their meetings a simple message. A second lockdown was around the corner. And they splashed it all over their newspapers the next morning. September the 22nd. I'm sure have a quick look at the front pages of the newspapers this morning and all the front pages lead with speculation about what measures could be introduced to slow the spread of coronavirus. Let's have a look at the Telegraph. The second shutdown begins is the headline uh, saying Boris Johnson will also be telling people in televised address 8pm tonight uh, to return to working from home where it does not detrimentally affect businesses. We're trying to get some more information on that. We're speaking to Michael Gove uh, at 7.30 this morning. So far, so good for the careful choreography. 
In just five days, the Prime Minister had been presented with evidence that a second wave of Covid was coming. He'd had long conversations with his own medical, scientific, strategic and media advisers about the need to lock down soon and reacted against it. He'd been reassured by hearing from other experts who disagreed with the ones in-house. He'd been mentally transported a month into the future when his advisers thought he'd have to act because he'd have no other choice. And now the story was out in the world. There'd be a second lockdown and it wasn't far away. It looked as if the die was cast. But the choreographers hadn't reckoned on something outside the careful dance they'd put on. Something with much more emotional power over Boris Johnson than anything they could stage. An intimate service at Westminster Abbey this morning commemorated 80 years since the Battle of Britain. The Prime Minister was one of fewer than 500, than 100 guests to attend with invitations limited due to coronavirus. It was the first service the Abbey has held since lockdown with parallels drawn between the battle fought by RAF pilots then and that of NHS staff now. Martha Fairley was there. With pomp and ceremony, but also with screens and face masks, it was a small congregation that gathered at Westminster Abbey, among them the Prime Minister and leader of... This was two days before those newspaper headlines which seemed to prepare the ground for a second lockdown. The memorial service looks as it was, a rather sad and diminished event for a big anniversary. And when the Prime Minister got back to Downing Street afterwards... Patrick Vallance's diary, which is now part of the evidence at the COVID inquiry, recorded a man going through a sort of emotional spasm. A man who might be about to trolley. Five hours of meetings with the PM. He came back from the Battle of Britain memorial service and was distressed by seeing everyone separated and in masks. Mad and spooky, we've got to end it. He looked broken, head in hands a lot. And then the diary listed a series of questions which gave clues to some of the unscientific ghosts that were roaming Boris Johnson's battlements. A hint of a sort of Churchillian myth about Britain's unique character. A terrible fatalism about the human race. And an odd, pessimistic note from a famously optimistic man. Quite a cocktail. Is it because of the great libertarian nation we are that it's spread so much? Maybe we're licked as a species. We are too shit to get our act together. Unless we hear it from Boris Johnson himself when he gives evidence to the inquiry, we may never know for sure how much the Battle of Britain Memorial Service weighed on his mind when he decided at the end of those five days that no, he wouldn't go for a full lockdown or anything like it. Dominic Cummings' strategy of painting the Prime Minister into a corner had failed. This is the man himself giving evidence to the inquiry. Yes, as the evidence shows, I basically agreed with Patrick and Chris. And uh, and I think also, I also thought that um, as, a, as a kind of psychological or political judgment, that if we did not do what Patrick and Chris were suggesting, I had a lot of confidence. As I remember, at this point, the data was extremely good, unlike the first wave. So at this point, I had a lot of confidence in what the data people were saying, and I thought, If they're roughly right, then I absolutely know that this guy is not going to be the mayor of Jaws. He will definitely bottle a new turn, and again it'll be the worst of all worlds. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. The Mayor of Jaws. You remember Jaws. An enormous, murderous shark starts eating swimmers alive off the shore of a fictional American resort called Amityville, just July the 4th holiday is approaching. The police chief wants to close the beaches and keep people safe. The mayor is determined to keep them open for fear of wrecking every business in town. What are you talking about? Larry, the summer is over. You're the mayor of Shark City. These people think you want the beaches open. I, I was, I was, I was acting in the in the town's best interest. That's, that's right. You I were acting, acting in the town's, town's best interest, best and that's why you're going to do the right thing. That's why. You're... There was Roy Scheider, although he didn't know it at the time, playing police chief Dominic Cummings, and Murray Hamilton as Boris Johnson, or actually, as Mayor Larry Vaughan. Wanting to be the mayor of Jaws, as he called it, was an idea Boris Johnson returned to time and again as he argued against the second lockdown. The idea of acting in the economy's best interests, not letting a force of nature bankrupt the country and ruin all our lives for years to come, when the virus was only really a threat to a minority. It might have tickled Boris Johnson, but the mayor of Jaws always seemed a strange role model. Even to Boris Johnson, funnily enough. He gave a speech as far back as 2006 where he cast himself in that role. And then he gave an interview to Time magazine in 2012, where he said more about why he stuck with it. My hero, he said, is the mayor in Jaws. He's a fantastic guy. And he keeps the beaches open, if you remember, even after it's demonstrated that his constituents have been eaten by this killer fish. And he went on. Of course, he, the mayor, was proved catastrophically wrong in his judgment, but his instincts were right. Instinct over judgment. Exactly the problem Boris Johnson's advisers saw in him all the way through the pandemic. He'd started off in politics after all wanting to fight them on the beaches, in a certain sense. And not Amityville's. He wanted to be Churchill. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the... And Covid gave him an opportunity to be his hero, or someone like him, 
but when the chance came, he traded down. He chose a nobody role model, an unserious character who got all the big calls and jaws wrong, even though he had a better chance of getting them right than Boris Johnson did keeping the beaches open in the autumn of 2020. Because a shark, after all, can change its mind and go somewhere else. A virus doesn't do that. After the burst of energy in those five days following Patrick Vallance and Chris Whitty's advice to Boris Johnson that he'd need to order another lockdown soon, the evidence at the COVID inquiry shows a system which tried to work with the Prime Minister's instincts as best it could for the next month or so. Some new restrictions were brought in to try to stop the virus spreading as fast as it was, but none of the advisers thought they'd be remotely enough to turn the situation around. So the next 30 days, the month of October 2020, are a picture of frustration. Covid cases were growing and deaths were rising. There seemed to be a general assumption that Boris Johnson would change his mind in the end. But what on earth would it take for him to do it? As the newspaper headlines predicted on September the 22nd, some new restrictions came into force very quickly, before the end of that month. From Thursday, all pubs, bars and restaurants must operate a table service only, Mr Speaker, except for takeaways. Together with all hospitality venues, they must close at 10pm. And to help the police enforce this rule, I'm afraid that means, alas, closing and not just calling for last orders, because simplicity is paramount. The same day, Boris Johnson gave the people of England a nudge to do the right thing before he was forced to do it to them. At this critical moment, when I know uh, people will be wanting to know the details, I will be providing regular updates through these press conferences. And I have to be clear that if the evidence requires it, we will not hesitate to take further measures that uh, would, I'm afraid, be more costly uh, than uh, the ones we put into effect now. This from a man who'd already hesitated for more than a week, and who was only just getting into his hesitating stride. But at the same time, the arguments about damage to the economy were being made more and more forcefully. That options paper from Simon Ridley at the Cabinet Office a few days earlier included a forecast from the Treasury that 26,000 pubs, bars and restaurants were in danger of closing in spite of all the money the government had pumped into them. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, was vocally on Boris Johnson's side. Patrick Vallance vented his frustration at both Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak in his diary entry for October the 8th. Very bad meeting in number 10. PM talks of medieval measures rather than the ones being suggested. He says, perhaps we should look at another approach and apply different values. And surely this just sweeps through in waves like other natural phenomena and there is nothing we can do. As Simon Ridley said, a final slide. The PM said, whiskey and a revolver. In other words, I want to kill myself. He was all over the place. The Chancellor of the Exchequer using increasingly specific and spurious arguments against closing hospitality, both of them clutching at straws. When will they decide? Four days later, on October the 12th, Lee Kane texted Ben Warner, who was part of the Downing Street data team. We are so fucked. Same errors as in March. The same errors, maybe, but different pressures. This time around, 
those right-of-centre newspapers and magazines like The Spectator, under its editor Fraser Nelson, weren't persuaded that a new lockdown was needed, partly because they thought they could smell a rat or two in Downing Street. The Prime Minister was at that time quite sceptical of the fact that he was being spun and propagandised by his own advisers. Um, by the way, we now know, but Dominic Cummings has since admitted that he was working to overthrow Boris Johnson, I think, soon after the election. So to say that his chief advisor was working against him isn't a conspiracy theory. This is the state of affairs as described by his then chief advisor. We were already saying that by the summer, either we'll all have gone from here or we'll be in the process of trying to get rid of him and get someone else in as prime minister. From Fraser Nelson's vantage point, the memos from Sage and the various position papers that were flying around were part of that plot. You could absolutely tell that this was being written because if, the, if, if you're the Prime Minister being given this and you decide not to lock down, then all of these deaths are going to be on you. So it was almost written to be leaked. In fact, they were being leaked at the time. Now, so he would have um, sensed that he was the victim of, of a plot to try to scarify him. And seven months into the pandemic, there was a growing belief that the data that was being put in front of the Prime Minister was out of whack with reality. You heard it from Andrew Neil earlier. So we know just how spectacularly wrong the NHS modelling can be. And I would love for the COVID inquiry to publish that modelling, to publish the assumptions. Usually it's hiding behind the, oh, well, we locked down. So you never know. All of these terrible things could have come to pass if we um, didn't actually lock down. But... Of course, if you publish the modelling and the assumptions, you can see if the assumptions were right. All this, you can be sure, was being fed through to Boris Johnson by newspaper editors and owners whose views he really cared about. Not just now and then, but all the time. And the same murmuring was getting louder on his own backbenches. A ginger group called the Covid Recovery Group was being put together specifically to oppose a second lockdown. It didn't formally launch until early November but it was in the works all through the autumn of 2020. 70 Conservative MPs eventually signed up for it. I think the COVID recovery group put pressure on ministers to be more realistic and realise what was going on in the real world out there. This is Carl McCartney, one of the 70, MP for Lincoln, and harder line than most. It was clear that some of those answering the questions didn't have the answers to what were perhaps brutal but actually very pertinent questions about the decisions they had made, why they'd made them, and what those effects would be in the short and long term. And for some of us, certainly in the COVID recovery group, it was quite worrying because we weren't given the reassurance that decisions were being made for the right reason. Or, perhaps even more worryingly, that the advice that was being given was being given in the right way for the right reasons to influence what we would have said would be the right result. The right result, of course, was no second lockdown. But the number of cases of COVID was still rising. And hospital admissions, the number you could hang your hat on, were on the up. So something had to be done. What was done was a system of tiers. The idea of a one-size-fits-all model lockdown across the whole of England was still not on the agenda. So on October the 14th, different parts of England went into one of three different tiers, ranging from medium to very high. It didn't help Boris Johnson that something very similar had been announced in Scotland a few days earlier. Nor was it particularly helpful that so many of his backbench MPs started lobbying for their areas 
to be in the lowest possible category. The effect of that, John Edmonds thought, was predictable. Different local authorities were then reassessed and then, well, inevitably went up the tiers, basically, um, because the tiers, tier one and tier two were not really very stringent. And so what happened is they all went up. That was the problem with the tier system, is that they would all end up originally, in the end, in the tier three. And tier three probably just about hold the epidemic or not, might not increase very rapidly or might hold it. And then you'd end up with everywhere with high incidence and you're holding it at high incidence. That was my big problem with the tier system, because that seemed to me a really stupid thing to do. It was, in the end, a sort of levelling up scheme for the pandemic. But the day after the tiers system was introduced, so this is October the 15th, Boris Johnson sent a text to his communications director, Lee Kane, which went round like wildfire after it was read out at the COVID inquiry. He didn't want lockdown toughened. Quite the opposite. He says, I must say I've been slightly rocked by some of the data on COVID fatalities. The median age is 82 to 81 for men, 85 for women. That's above life expectancy, so get COVID and live longer. Hardly anyone under 60 goes into hospital. I no longer buy all this NHS overwhelmed stuff. Folks, I think we may need to recalibrate. And you say, all understood. But how does this change the policy, still not politically viable, to change course? He says it shows we don't go for nationwide lockdown. There were still 16 days to go at that point before Boris Johnson did change his mind and finally announced a second lockdown. Exactly what new facts or new instincts got in there, we don't know for sure. But the best account we've had so far of the slow unravelling of the Prime Minister's position came when one of the lawyers at the Covid inquiry, Andrew O'Connor, got Patrick Vallance to walk him through it. We've edited this to make it as concise as possible, but it's worth three minutes of your time. What I want to do now is is look at a series of entries in your notes um, to try and understand the sequence of events running up to the second lockdown. Let's look at this one. Um, Sunday the 25th, as I said, it starts with the PM meeting, begins to argue for letting it all rip. That was almost a term of art, I think, by that stage. That was something that was very prominent in much of the press as well, and letting it rip became the, um, the expression that people used. Prime Minister saying, yes, there will be more casualties, but so be it. Then you've, you've put quotes, <clears throat> they've had a good innings. Um, we've seen other references of a similar nature. Was this something that the Prime Minister returned to from time to time, the idea that the, the casualties of, of, of any letting it rip would be older and perhaps special circumstances or that, 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 that they should not so much concern should be had about casualties of that age. Is that really what he was trying to say? I think it's important to note that he might easily have said the following day, I want no deaths at all. Well, we'll come to that. Um, so, uh, I mean, yes, he, he, he must have said that on that day. I mean, we see a few lines down, you've put PM then back on to most people who die have reached their time anyway. A few lines down, PM concludes, looks like we're in a really tough spot, complete shambles. So we see a, a date which is just disappearing off the top, the 26th. So this is the next day, the Monday. Uh, and as you say, Sir Patrick, it, it appears the Prime Minister, you've recorded, in fact, he's in a different mood. Uh, terrible, terrible, terrible numbers. 
um, says we need to do local lockdowns fast, foot to the throttle, accelerate. He's so inconsistent. So previous day, letting it rip. This day, something very different by the look of it. Yes. A couple of lines further down, we're now into the next day, the Tuesday. Um, you record the number of deaths. Um, this takes us back perhaps to a comment you made this morning, which is to compare what was happening in October with what was happening in the run-up to the first lockdown, when, of course, there were far fewer deaths um, at that stage than there were by then. I think on the 16th of March, there was something like 51 deaths. And now we're talking about nearly 400 per day. Um, and your observation everything we said is happening and still no action. Is that a reference to advice you'd given? Well, tell us, dating back how long? Uh, I think it dated back from um, a press conference that Chris Woody and I had done on the 21st of September. If there's one figure which seems most capable of explaining why Boris Johnson changed his mind after all those weeks and did eventually announce a second national lockdown on October the 31st, that figure of nearly 400 deaths a day must be a very strong candidate. I spoke to one person whose job took them very close to Boris Johnson throughout all this time, and I got a more understanding readout on the Prime Minister than many people would be prepared to give. Boris Johnson's position wasn't a lonely, eccentric caprice, this person told me. The majority of the Cabinet agreed with it. And it was in line with a strong strand of opinion on the back benches, in the newspapers and in the country. In the end, far too late, they admitted, the Prime Minister did the right thing. And to an extent, given the strength of his convictions, that was admirable. The more mainstream view, even among people like Fraser Nelson, who would have found himself on the same side as Boris Johnson in most arguments before the pandemic, was less charitable. The Prime Minister was all over the place. He, you had him on bullish days and bearish days and days he wanted to um, be the mayor of Jaws and days he wanted to lock down tomorrow. And um, all throughout that process, I was asking questions as journalists to what is the mind of the prime minister? And it depended what hour of the day it was. He was, you know, the wrong man for the wrong job. Unforgivably, more people died in the UK's second wave of Covid than in the first. And to hear John Edmonds at the Covid inquiry putting a very tentative figure on how many needn't have died is hard to stomach. The decision is either you do it now and get on top of this epidemic and control the epidemic, or you let it control you. And it will force you into a lockdown at a later date when you'll have to lock down harder and longer and many people will die as a consequence. And unfortunately, that is what happened. Over that autumn, from around 20 to 25,000 people died. And some would have done, but there's no reason for that number of people to have died at all. The final decision to introduce a second national lockdown was taken by Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, Michael Gove and Matt Hancock at about half past three on the Friday afternoon, October the 30th, and almost immediately leaked to ITV's political editor Robert Peston. It's hard to avoid the conclusion that someone was trying to make sure Boris Johnson didn't trolley again. The next day, the broadcasters were told there'd be a press conference in the afternoon, around four o'clock. But the hours went by and the timetable kept slipping. 
something that was not quite a row, blew up between the BBC and 10 Downing Street, with the BBC not quite threatening, but certainly hinting, that if the press conference clash was strictly come dancing, it might get bumped off BBC One and onto the news channel. But still, it got pushed back. Some of the delay was caused by Boris Johnson agonising over the words in the statement, and more of it by him ringing around MPs and newspaper people to try to get them on board. In the end, the clash with Strictly was mostly avoided. It was about quarter to seven that evening when Boris Johnson walked up to the lectern. From Thursday until the start of December, you must stay at home. You may only leave home for specific reasons, including... And Strictly only got delayed by 10 minutes. The job of the COVID inquiry is to learn lessons so we don't make the same mistakes again. But it'll be years before we hear what it has to say. It's within the realms of possibility that we might not have finished learning the lessons of the last pandemic before the next one comes along. So there's a job for all of us to learn whatever we can along the way. The easy and obvious first lesson is the one Fraser Nelson drew, we had the wrong Prime Minister. But even as people are saying that, the Covid inquiry is getting criticism for turning into a circus, all about personalities, not process. The truth is, though, you can't take people out of the picture. We'd have had a very different pandemic under a Margaret Thatcher, a Tony Blair, even a Theresa May. But having the wrong Prime Minister doesn't mean we were in some sort of constitutional crisis. Boris Johnson wasn't alone in wanting to avoid a second lockdown. He had the cabinet on his side, okay, a Brexit cabinet which he built to agree with him, but a lot of backbenchers as well, and a solid chunk of public opinion. He wasn't an outlier. He wasn't ill or insane. Constitutionally, things were normal. But still, something went terribly wrong. Thousands of people died who needn't have done. It wasn't the weakness of one thing that allowed that to happen. It was the weakness of everything. Feeble political parties where the wrong people can rise to the top. We will deliver, we will deliver, we will deliver. Sisters and brothers, thank you very much for inviting me here today. A divided Conservative Party, a thin cabinet. A cabinet secretary, the most senior civil servant in the country, who could have been an influential voice in Boris Johnson's ear, but kept moaning that he was at the end of his tether and couldn't cope and an operation around the Prime Minister in Downing Street, with Dominic Cummings right at the heart of it, which was dysfunctional, macho and malicious. There's not a single woman's voice in this podcast, and that's reflective of who was seen as important in the room at the time. So it wasn't just government that failed. It went much wider than that. But still the system had enough in the tank to do the thing it does perhaps best of all it delivered enormous power to the Prime Minister. He was far from the only person involved in the decision to delay a second lockdown. But you can see from what the people around him said in all their evidence to the Covid inquiry, he was the only one who mattered. If he'd turned, everyone else would have turned with him. There's an irony in all that. The machinery around Boris Johnson gave him the strength to be weak and the power to be indecisive. And he went on a sort of spree of dithering and delay which cost us all because he chose for all of us. 
we had the epidemic that we chose to have. And I say we, I mean, <laughs> I don't really mean me, but I mean we as a country, as our, you know, our elective. We had the epidemic that was chosen for us from that point onwards, from the sun, summer of 2020. With these exceptions of when, when, when there was a, you know, an external shock produced by, by the virus. But mostly we got, we got what we um, paid for. We paid in a lot of ways, of course, not just in deaths from COVID, but other diseases as well. And in the toll lockdowns took on mental health, on education, on people from ethnic minorities in particular. We'll come back to all of those in the slow newscast as the COVID inquiry goes about its work. You can try to paint a picture in your mind of Boris Johnson the way he'd want us to see him as the second wave of COVID swept in. Like the mayor of Jaws, a proud man on a beach, picking a fight with a natural enemy for the good of all of us. But there's a problem. It's not a convincing picture because everyone can see that Boris Johnson has miscalculated everything. His judgment is wrong and his instincts are wrong. He's got himself and us into a fight he can't possibly win. Because the truth is, standing on that beach, he's not Winston Churchill. He's not even the mayor of Jaws. He's King Canute. Thanks for listening to The Slow Newscast. This episode was written and reported by me, Kerry Thomas. The producer is Amy Harper with additional reporting by Phoebe Davis. The sound design is by Tom Birchall. Tortoise. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. 